conspiracies, betrayals, double crosses, and maybe even a little wrestling, it's time to talk about the year 1925. Crazy territory stories, double crosses, and swerves. Pro wrestling history nerds. Oh my gosh, we're here, you're here, we're both somewhere, not together, kind of together, but apart both in distance and time. What am I talking about? What's even happening? My name's Nick Gossard. I am a wrestling promoter, I'm a wrestling booker, but more importantly for today, I am a pro wrestling historian, and I am here with the Kickboxer 3 to the to my Bloodsport 4, the VHS bad sequel knockoffs, it's Chongo Bronson. Well, if you're going to be the worst at something, at least be the best at it, darling. Hello, nerds. Pop quiz. If you're on the hippodromic stress and you're traveling towards London at 45 miles an hour and the year is going to be 1925, what's going to happen? Goodness, we're going to find out. We are going to find out today because we have one heck of a story. We have one heck of a tale. Actually, some of this has been told before in a previous episode, but you're going to learn a lot more now that we're doing this year-by-year deep dive. I'm excited to tell this story. Hopefully you're excited to listen to this story. And we're about to get into the year 1925 in American pro wrestling. A little little housekeeping before we uh, get to that. Um, Some people may have read like a biography of a wrestler later on who told a version of this story, or you might have heard a version of this from a different, uh, like a YouTube video or something and said, hey guys, you know, I don't know if that's right, or I don't know if this was right. Well, this is a time before shoot interviews. This is a time before autobiographies or like inside workings being known to the outside to a great extent. So I am putting the source material that I have at hand together as best I can, and hopefully it's as accurate as humanly possible. And I like to think it is. Yeah, and if it's not, I'm not saying I disagree with where you're coming from, but I'm just saying you're probably one of those people that think the Earth is 6,000 years old and dinosaurs didn't exist. So whose historical fossil record are we really going to listen to, darling? Well, hopefully we're going to be listening to mine. I mean, it'd be weird if they downloaded the show and they weren't listening. It'd be a very strange thing to do, but I would appreciate the download number anyway. Yeah, that's what I do. So getting into it, where we left off last time, Ed Lewis was champ. He was still champ. He had been champ for quite some time. He was having health issues. He was almost blind. He was out of shape. He was looking worse in the ring every time he stepped into it. He was getting arrested for punching people out and getting in car accidents because he couldn't see. But he was committing the greatest sin in wrestling, which is holding down the title for too long doing bad matches, and blowing the draw of the championship. So there was a need to create a new champion. There was a need to get the belt off of Lewis, but they had structured the whole business around Lewis, so when you've had the champ eat everybody up for so long, what do you do? Well, it's a hard one, man, because, you know, that goes beyond just uh, combat, sport, and pro wrestling. Like, you don't see a lot of Hall of Fame quarterbacks as backups when they get older and they're less it's like once you're trained to be the man that's all you know and you're gonna die on that hill and at this point who could be trusted to take the title without double crossing the gold dust trio Tootsmont could have been a good choice after a few years of being Lewis's policeman, but he had lost too many matches to the top guy and probably just hadn't been in the top spotlight long enough for Sandow to think he would have made a big impact across the board. 
Stanislaw Zbyszko was completely flattened by endless losses and the, quote, old man of the ring gimmick was worn out. Pesic was too tough of a shooter for Sandow to trust in case he didn't feel like doing business once he won the belt. And also, his draw had been burned out in Chicago with his big loss to the Strangler. Londos wasn't completely controlled by Sandow, so he was out, and the also-rans of Daviscourt, Gardini, Micromano, etc. were out of the question immediately. So what did Sandow do when there wasn't a hot star to push to the moon? Well, he created one. Big Wayne Munn was not a great wrestler. He wasn't even a good wrestler, but he had the big man star quality that Sandow saw as money. The six foot six athlete was a former collegiate star in football, and during World War I, he was on a touring all-star football team that traveled the country and beat every other Army team. Not sure if it was a Harlem Globetrotter situation or a legit competition. I would love to see like old-timey, like leather-helmeted football doing like a spitting the ball on the finger gimmick like the Globetrotters. Oh yeah, just see yeah, like see a total like hippodrome football game where they're doing like some crazy trick plays, but it's like leather helmet era. That would be awesome. That's probably how the first pass got invented. I like to think so. And Munn, he was a big, weird-looking man. If you can't find a picture of him, imagine the Incredible Hulk if H.P. Lovecraft was bombarded with gamma rays instead of Bruce Banner. Well, that is a very, very distinct image, and you know what? I can't unsee what my brain just showed me. But the fact is, too, like you said it, he's 6'6", he's a beast, and while he might not be the best wrestler, when it comes to holding a person down against their will for three seconds, a 6'6", human refrigerator that played ball at Nebraska can probably get the job done if they need to. Yeah, I mean, he could at least make some things look believable, and... Munn had left the army as a lieutenant and bounced around from teaching to preaching to selling cars and the oil business. He even tried his hand at vaudeville before trying and failing at boxing. Sandow noticed the press Munn was getting just off of that and knew he could draw well in a controlled environment. And he signed Munn for his company. He was trained by the best, only worked with those who were trusted to carry him and put him over in very short matches, both to build him strong and hide the fact that all he could do is about a tie-up and a scoop slam. Yeah, he was basically the proto-Goldberg of his era, right? I mean, the, the football beast that was very limited, but was made to present like a world beater by all these great workers. Exactly. He was very much that... Goldberg, the Hogan, the, you know, now today you see so many athletes coming into wrestling at the highest level with the WWE Performance Center who have to be taught how to wrestle. And in order to look even decent on TV, they have to be carried by a better wrestler who is less a star. And this is very much the prototype of this. That I don't think this ever happened before where a non shoot grappler was brought into wrestling and pushed this hard because he 100% got that Hogan push despite his moveset being a football tackle and a body slam. Well, you know, uh, believability goes a long way and everybody can believe a proper football tackle. I mean, that's pretty much a spear from a guy that looks like, uh, you know, Brock Sampson on Venture Brothers. Exactly. 
And in Kansas City on December 12th, 1924, it was time to take Wayne Munn to the next level by beating Toots Mont. The Omaha Morning Bee covered it the next day, letting the world know that Munn beat Mont in two straight falls, both with a reverse half Nelson, 29 minutes, 25 seconds, and 4 minutes, 20 seconds. The Hastings Daily Tribune reported that 10,000 fans watched it happen, and I can only imagine the work that Mont put in to carry him for half an hour on that first fall. Yes, quote Sandow, not to toots my own horn, but that big Wayne Munn will be big Wayne Munny. This was huge and set the stage for one of the most shocking moments in wrestling. January 8th, 1925 at the Kansas City Convention Hall. Sandow and promoter Gabe Kaufman had turned Munn into a star in the Kansas City area, so it was the perfect place for Big Wayne Munn to get his title shot against Ed Lewis. 15,000 fans cheered for Munn as soon as he made his way to the ring. The Kansas City star claimed the fans were, quote, yelling wildly for him, and yet probably there were few who actually conceded him a chance. The first fall was 22 minutes of Munn shaking off all of Lewis's holds, including the headlock, before the giant picked up Lewis and landed a huge body slam from a crotch hold. Munn pinned the champ, and after the fall, Lewis took five minutes to get to his feet and was on the canvas writhing in pain, just selling the hell out of this. So they've already set the stage for Lewis can you know, all his tools cannot take down the big man. And then the big man just gets the big scoop. Boom, down you go. One, two, three. And Lewis is lying there like he was dropped out of a fucking airplane. Yes, and see, that's not anything that would necessarily set off any kind of red flags. Because one, another aspect of Strangler Lewis is he is pretty much the archetypal you know, he is the prototype when it comes to dirty, creative finishes and coming back and making it look like the babyface. You pretty much had to weasel his way out from this assured victory by the babyface. So this looks like it's fallen right into form. Yeah, because it wasn't uncommon for the champ to give up the first fall because then he comes back strong. Boom, boom. So this didn't, again, it didn't really register with the crowd outside of it being an entertaining. He got in that one. But Lewis was selling it like he was dying. The usual 10-minute rest period was extended to 20 to give Lewis enough time to regain his fighting spirit. In the second, Munn picked up Lewis and threw him over at the top rope, which was illegal at the time. Sandow jumped in the ring and threw a fit about the foul, getting in Munn's face to the point where the crowd thought these two were going to fight. The crowd rushed the ring, clearly ready to riot if the match was called off as a disqualification. According to the Kansas City Star, Munn defended himself against the foul, quote, I didn't throw him over, explained Munn. I held him high and he wriggled out of my clutch. The referee demanded order and awarded the fall, but not the match to Lewis, but not the match to Lewis over the foul. Lewis was carried to the dressing room as the fans booed and threw trash at him. Imagine the drama of this one. Imagine the drama of, you know, Munn picks him up and he, you know, throws him over the top rope. And then I, I picture that defense of like, where it's where he's like, oh, I didn't. He just wriggled out of my grasp. I just kind of figured. I hear that in like a, like a like a cartoon moron voice, like the the little man just fell out of my hands because he got so wiggly, and then Sandow running in, like almost wanting to fight the 
fight, you know, fight mud and the crowd circling, ready to rip shit up if this ends that way. That's drama. That's wrestling. This has the potential to be one of the hottest finishes of all time. And talk about the layering of sophistication of the work where the guy orchestrating the, the whole thing is getting in the guy's face that he told to do the thing he's doing. Yeah, because you have to remember in storyline, in kayfabe, Sandow was Lewis's manager and promoter Gabe Kaufman was Munn's manager. So everybody's wearing multiple hats behind the scene and then a different hat in front of the uh, in front of the crowd. Oh, it, it, the tapestry of hippodromism or hippodromium, however, however, hippodromosity, hippo, yes, hippodromification is just it's so elegant and so beautiful. The layers of this because he's insulated from any wrongdoing. It's got the crowd literally behind. An action that got the guy, he basically could do that. Now, that could have broke Lewis's neck, you know? he's That took its toll, and that was a very strategic way to make it 1-1. Yeah, because, again, Lewis is, they're protecting Lewis uh, by letting it go 1-1, and then he didn't necessarily take two, cause it, so he doesn't have to take two falls, even though he took a heck of a fall over that rope. And they sold the heck out of it because it was another tense 20 minutes before Lewis finally returned for the third with his torso wrapped in bandages, which as any wrestling fan knows will help with a back injury. It's like just one of those hilarious, like, oh, look, he's got some, he's, he's got an ace bandage wrapped around his ribs. Oh man, he's, he's in a lot of pain. <laughs> see, that's what, see, that's exactly what the marks we want him to think. What it really is is it's camouflage because what happens, you get this big bruisey do and it's like a target. So when we wrap it in the in the ace bandage, now it's invisible. Now they have no idea to target the body. I'm gonna go I'm gonna I'm gonna take your word for that. That yeah. sounds uh, very logical, very true. I'm gonna, I'm buying into this. Yes, layers to the working game, well, so Lewis, you know, he, he was wrapped up, covering a bruise, pretending, you know, whatever the situation. He gets into the ring. He is visibly weak on his feet. And when the bell rang, he tried a headlock, was picked up and slammed by Munn, who in turn pinned him for the win. Big Wayne Munn was the new champion. The fans pushed their way past the police and got in the ring to celebrate with the new champ, a far cry from how fans behaved after Lewis's victories. Lewis was left on the canvas until he was scooped up by his coroner and taken to a hospital via ambulance for, quote, undetermined injuries. So this is completely bananas. Like, that's a WrestleMania moment. The It's like a combination between WrestleMania and Daniel LaRusso winning the fucking karate tournament, where just everybody's rushing in, and I don't he think he was too big to hoist up on their shoulders. People's spines would give out. Meanwhile, Lewis is just dead selling in the corner, like, for this whole fucking time until, like, they carry him away. So this is a Hollywood moment. This is a movie magic moment. This is... Showbiz manipulation at its highest. Wow, what a way to finish that match. And one detail that would 
unintentionally become important in this story was Ed Lewis hanging onto the physical belts, both the Zabisco New York City belt from Rickard and the 1921 Kansas City belt, refusing to hand it over because he, quote, didn't lose fair and square, which is a heel move if ever there was one. And this was a ploy to build up Munn as a national babyface and make Lewis even more despicable to get heat for a planned rematch. The press gave equal time to, hot dang, there's a new champion, and oh no, Lewis is in the hospital. So I really do like the hanging on to the belt as like, ah, bat, eagle heel move, you beat me, but I'm not giving this over because of this technicality. So, like, again, it creates a great amount of drama. Sandow protested the win, even canceling the European tour, which clearly wasn't even a real thing. He claimed that he'd take Munn and the promoter to court over this, which is funny considering secretly he was the promoter. The protection of Munn by having his, quote, manager gave Kaufman announce a contract for a vaudeville tour through the end of the month. He was getting trained daily by Mont and Sandow, trying to build him up to being an acceptably capable wrestler. And the vaudeville tour, this was brilliant because it kept him busy in the public eye, but not to the same extent that stadium matches would have. This was to protect his image and avoid too many challengers from calling him out. So on the, on the backside, are you thinking that this was, this was the play to get Strangler some time off? Oh, 100%. This was a situation where they needed to freshen up the title. They needed a strong baby face to take it over. Munn kind of comes out of nowhere. Not only did he get the title, but not the belt. It gave Lewis time off. And it also had him getting more heel heat by, you know, hanging on to the belt and being an asshole. So you have a lot of drama going up to a big rematch down the road. Yeah, that is that is just a perfect microcosm of the way that bookings go today. It's like the champ's been the top guy for a while. He drops the strap. He steps away. How can they miss you if you don't go away? He gets a chance to come back later, and they get the next guy over. The babyface, they they wanted the... the the key to a babyface being champion is building it up the right way so that the people, like the chase has meaning and the, the, the capture of it. And that's brilliant. They're like, they're creating this right now. Yeah, Sandow did this perfectly and clearly it paid off. I mean, the whole wrestling world went crazy about this, but there was now the challenge of protecting his image. And why did he need protecting? Because he couldn't wrestle at a high level. Even though wrestling was a work and had been a crooked sport for decades, you still needed to be a world-class grappler to make your way in this business. Mont and Lewis knew this and hated the idea, but trusted Sandow. The Trust and now the Goldust Trio were the first national booking organizations and knew they needed to control the booking down to the choice of referees to avoid double crosses because if your champ couldn't win for real, there's a chance of someone pulling a fast one and turning it into a shoot, taking the belt, and now it's out of the booking office's control. So Sandow limited the number of people who Munn would work with. And that's smart, but good God, it's also risky as hell. Shows maybe a little too much confidence, bordering on hubris on Sandow's part, to say, there is, this guy's a risk. You know, you can, we have to control everything. We have to control the referee. We have to control the, the, the matches. We have to make sure we trust to the core of our souls anybody who's going to be involved in these matches because, yeah, he's a big, strong guy, 
but we've both seen we've both been in uh, like you know grappling situations where you watch the the novice come in who's six foot six, two hundred and you know fifty pounds, and the little the little like even purple belt who weighs hundred and seventy five is just like oh I'm gonna eat this motherfucker for dinner. Yeah, shout out to Zizi. <laughs> but um, no, that's it's it's like we're we're seeing the first time that sports entertainment or proto sports entertainment is getting the the highest position on the card or the highest priority in the booking structure where they're going like you said this is the first time that they've ever gone with somebody based on the look and the, the draw and the mystique and and the way that they're presenting him as opposed to his actual ability to wrestle so this is a huge gamble man and it paid off because Munn became a celebrity almost overnight. He received offers to coach college wrestling teams, which were wisely turned down. Wayne's brother, Monty, was a, that's right, Monty Munn, weird name, was a Nebraska state congressman and presented Wayne to the House of Representatives in the state. Both brothers gave speeches and all representatives were given free tickets to the vaudeville show where Munn was performing. So this guy's getting like, almost like the Captain America treatment. He's being trotted out in government for endorsements. He's hobnobbing with politicians. He's a, you know, a big football hero who's a lieutenant in the army. So, you know, it's funny that colleges are just like off his prestige trying to offer him a job he is in no fucking way qualified to take. But yeah, he's he's getting the he is a celebrity now based off of a mountain of bullshit. He's the first bullshit celebrity in pro wrestling. In a system in a sport built on bullshit. So this is this is king of the heap of material. <laughs> yes, but it's also the proto like, you know, Hogan, Rock, the guy that is permeated to the top position in this business, getting catapulted to sort of like that mainstream action star kind of almost John Wayne-ish persona in the public eye. This is the this is the first example of that. So on that level, this is actually absolutely a wise calculation on Sandow's part. It was, but the press and the fans did have some suspicions. The Lincoln Journal star on January 22nd, 1925, thought it odd that Munn wasn't doing matches. Gabe Kaufman, being his storyline manager, retorted, we are taking vaudeville dates. One reason that Munn suffered almost a collapse following the match, resulting from the nervous tension from the strain, this will enable him to rest. Also, it will help to fatten a purse that has been mighty lean for many months. Further in the same article, Kaufman stated, No grappler will be barred when Wayne Munn starts to wrestle again. Is that fair enough? Can you or any other Nebraska newspaper find fault with that? I can assure you or anyone else that neither Munn nor I have anything whatsoever to do with the so-called wrestling trust. We are pursuing our own way. So what a fun way to say every fucking lie you could possibly say in five minutes. There was no intention to ha let it be open season on him. There was no intention to let him wrestle the, the outlaws and the trust busters. And he's very indignant about it because he, Gabe Kaufman, is in no way connected to that wrestling trust of Sandow's. It's just bullshit on top of bullshit. I love the, like, nervous strain. Like, what the fuck does that even mean? That's, that's some, like, like, does he need, like, to have, like, electroshock therapy and an oatmeal bath? I don't know the cure for that. He just needed a spa day. It, it's, it's remarkable. It's, like, the one excuse they could give that would not diminish him in any physical capacity. But, like, yeah, 
they basically just ran through every single thing they could say. Like, uh, that was complete, complete bullshit. I was beautiful. <laughs> oh, this is good shit, man. In the storyline Sandow concocted, both men in the, were in the press saying they were suing each other over the title and claims of being the champion. The Times Record News chimed in with Wayne Munn, he's the new Matt Champ, but it'll be harder to grab title belt than it was to flip Ed Lewis. So in, they're creating this storyline where Sandow's essentially suing himself. It's fucking brilliant, and I love it. When there was talk of Wayne Munn versus Stanislaw Zabisco in Chicago, there was a claim of an injunction from the court to stop it, filed by Sandow, so the match had to be moved to Kansas City on February 11th. Meanwhile, Lewis made his return on February 3rd, willing to wrestle whomever the promoter would bring out, so it was such a surprise when it was Tootsmont, who Lewis beat in two out of three falls, and claimed that he was defending the real world championship. Wayne Munn was on the same show, performing a demonstration of his strength and technique. What a weirdly layered thing to do where Ed Lewis is now still claiming to be the champion. He's got the belt. It was an illegitimate win. But then at the same time, uh, you know, at the same time, Munn's on the same show doing a, a demonstration. Weird, but that's pro wrestling. That is exactly pro wrestling because you see it. It's like they're setting it up. It's this, the angle is brewing. They're putting all these pieces together. I mean, how, this is like what's crazy is now all of the ingredients in this one collective angle are like 20 different angles in one angle nowadays. It's brilliant. They're literally inventing work pro wrestling as they go. And here is a very strange one. On February 6th, St. Louis Star and Times, headline, Davis Court has self-disqualified to keep from being thrown. In front of 8,500 fans, the largest wrestling crowd in St. Louis history at that point, came out to watch Dick Davis Court versus Joe Stetcher. Davis Court won the first fall in four minutes, and Stetcher the second one in an hour and 19 minutes. Davis Court was punching and butting Stetcher until he was bleeding from the nose. In the third, shit got wild. Stetcher threw Davis Court out of the ring and into the press stand. Then, quote, Davis Court scrambled back into the ring, let out a wild yell, and butted Stetcher in the chest with his head. Referee Cook halted the contest, declaring Stetcher the winner. Article continued with, quote, Davis Court is through here. His aggressive wrestling was a change, but he has worn out his welcome. He would make a great foreman in a logging camp. <laughs> Dang, he's too roughneck. We don't do that here. So, I mean, that sounded like a almost like a worked hardcore match. Yeah, it, and it's such an insane thing where it's like the first fall, pretty basic. Second fall, it's getting rough. He's throwing butts and strikes at uh, Stetcher, beating up his face. Third one, Stetcher comes back mad, throws him out of the ring. He gets back in, lets out like a primal shriek, and runs and headbutts Stetcher in the chest for the DQ. And I want to know how Stetcher sold that. Because what a weird fucking thing to do. Yeah, and it, like, uh, knowing what we know, that's like how we can guarantee that that's a work. But that is, what a fucking finish. He's like, all right, all right, mate, I'm going to hit you with the fucking E-Honda running headbutt right now. Like, yeah, it's, it's a weird goddamn thing. But hey, if whatever makes the crowd riot, am I right? Yes, exactly. That's what it's about. On February 11th, 
Wayne Munn beat Stanislaw Zabisco in two straight falls to defend the championship. Zabisco looked old and fat because, well, because he was old and fat. And in the match, he was completely run over by the giant and athletic Wayne Munn, which means one very important thing. Zabisco carried that big guy like a motherfucker. The first fall was 16 minutes, 40 seconds, <sighs> and the second, 12 minutes, 45 seconds. Both times with a crotch hold body slam, the only wrestling move Munn could pull off and make it look good. This, again, it really shows how good Zabisco was even at that age, carrying Munn through longer matches. The press rewarded his effort with praise for Munn. The Buffalo Times reported, The ease of the victory lent further impression to the Kansas City idea that Munn will be a real champion, and that, quote, the former Nebraska football star toyed with the aged Zabisco. So that's, again, it's like, it's weird that in wrestling when the biggest insult is technically the greatest praise. Yeah, exactly. It's because they don't, you did your job so well, they didn't realize that you were the one that made this jabroni look like the star of the, the Kung Fu movie. I'm visualizing like a real Regal versus Goldberg vibe going on here. Oh, absolutely. It was, it was that type of thing where you have a master technician carrying a big lout, and then at the end of the road, everybody's like, this big lout is fantastic. And you just kind of have to be like, yeah, well, fuck me, I guess. Yeah, you know, it sucks to be the guy that gets everybody over and nobody knows that. But that's, you know, that's a real worker right there, man. And you, okay, question two. Is this the first example of like a big sort of slam power move high spot finish as opposed to like a submission no, signature finish? There was a lot of, of the, you know, the big slams from the bigger men, especially in the Greco-Roman days. Uh, but this guy was... You know, he was because they really leaned into his size. Yeah. So they made they made that his signature move because he was six foot six. So when you get hit with a crotch hold scoop slam, you it it's must have imagine what that sounded like when he hit the boards. Totally, man. And it really is like I, you know, he he's picking these guys up and and it's like you know the equivalent of the razor's edge for that yeah, generation. Exactly. Because you know? yeah, it's like something where he go when he, when he brings you up, you go all the fucking way up. Yeah, that is that is fucking cool, and that's why pro wrestling is awesome. At the same time, Joe Stetcher was very active in the St. Louis, Wichita, Memphis, and New York City scenes. Remember that the Stetcher brothers were still connected to Jack Hurley and were willing to more or less be the only game in town for the former wrestling mecca. Keep in mind, like Muldoon was in charge, but he was way more focused on boxing at this point. He had his hands full. Wrestling was starting to make a comeback in New York City now that he wasn't, uh, you know, taking a shit on it every fucking day. Tony and Joe Stetcher were trying to lure John Pesek into a match in early 1925. Joe made a public offer of a $10,000 bet against him, but Max Bauman and Tony Stetcher could never line up a meeting to really discuss this. Not sure if this was a shoot or a work, since both men knew each other and seemed to have a good relationship. The Stetchers also made a $20,000 bet against Tootsmont, which also went nowhere. Stetcher's demands for a title shot were starting to become a problem for the Sandow group, especially with Stetcher very active and very successful in the ring. So they're having problems because now you can't really ignore a guy. You can't really 
you know, if, if Stetcher's legitimately ready to go up against your policeman in a shoot, or he's starting to wanting to do business, it doesn't really matter either way because this guy's mouthing off to the press. He's beating everybody's in the ring with. How do you justify denying him these matches without looking like you're protecting a paper tiger? Yes, classic Rocky Three opening um, mon- montage scenario with Clever Lang. You got the, the the hungry monster coming. He's taking out every contender. He's putting out every hurdle in the press, and he's calling you out. And at some point, it's one thing to act like somebody's beneath you and they don't worth. They're not worth a shot. But at some point, if he keeps the projecting the level of legitimacy where it starts to look like you're ducking him, yeah, it's a problem, man. And Stetcher, for him, it wasn't all challenges and wins. He did find some negative attention coming his way, which is shocking in wrestling, I know. The New York Daily News on February 20th published, Omaha claims Joe Stetcher confessed. A story came to the press about Stetcher, gasp, doing the job for Zabisco several years earlier and openly admitting it. Jack Hurley, who, quote, controls the metropolitan man-bending, defended Stetcher and demanded to know who would make such an accusation and that, quote, Stetcher didn't say anything of the kind and he is going to sue for libel if he doesn't get a retraction. So what a what a weird little thing where somebody comes out and says, oh, Joe Stetcher says he worked, confessed and said he worked a match seven years ago. Big scandal. We can't trust this man. How many articles have we recounted where the papers are just making fun of wrestling for being worked, yet somehow this can still turn into a weird scandal? And I just love the, the and if you don't retract to this, we're going to go to court over it, you know, showbiz going on the offense. Oh, yeah, man. That's like, it's really interesting how they're sort of, yeah, they're manipulating it in that way because, yeah, because that is a complete antithesis of what they're trying to, the papers are always trying to say it's a work and now you guys are you know you're cherry picking it was a wild time to be a wrestler man it always is jim londos appeared on a jack hurley show in new york city most likely because he'd been passed up for the title spot that went to wayne munn the plan for sandow's wayne munn storyline was to be a rematch against Ed Strangler Lewis on May 30th in a huge outdoor venue in Michigan City, Indiana. The plan was to hype this to the level of Gotch versus Hackenschmidt, but actually deliver on the premise. Both Munn and Lewis were touring, claiming to be the champion and defending their titles. Munn was getting wins against Sandow loyalists like Mike Romano, Pat McGill, Wallace DeGuid, and a big one against Toots Mont on March 31st in front of 8,000 fans. And yes, most of these matches were very short for title matches to hide Munn's lack of skill. According to the Indianapolis Star on February 19th, Munn beat Romano in two straight falls, six minutes for the first, and... You, I'm not, I'm not uh, mis- misstating this. 47 seconds for the second Ooh. fall. So yeah, they are just giving him squashers. They are Goldberging the fuck out of this. Yeah, they're literally Goldberging him. That's crazy, man. So what's what's wild is you're seeing sort of like the ancestor of the uh, first ladder match in WWF. WWE between Razor and Shawn Michaels, where it's like the heel holding on to the belt and the babyface is the true champ, but who's the champion? I mean, that that angle, I mean, obviously that's been told a different way, but that is beautiful because they're, they're literally doing that for the first time here. 
And with a guy like Mun wearing the belt, shooters from outside the Goldust Trio company were salivating at the idea of getting their hands on him. Jack Curley was constantly pointing out that Munn was a prop, not a wrestler. The Dayton Herald published, quote, Curley sticks to story that Munn lacks ability. And legit wrestlers were lining up to call out Munn, including Charlie Hansen. Hansen was a Swedish-born, Farmer Burns-trained grappler who was on the outside of both the Sandow and Stetcher groups and was looking to talk his way into wrestling fame and fortune. He could back it up, being a dangerous shooter whom Burns compared to Gotch, knowledge-wise anyway. With a truly fake wrestler holding the belt, Hansen, who called himself a trustbuster, and his manager went into overdrive trying to get a shot at Munn, offering $5,000 to Munn for a match, a grand to anyone who would book it, so Sandow did what he always did and told Hansen that he'd have to beat John Pesek first. Oh well, he's putting the he's putting the the system of the structure of protection with the policemen in play, and that's why it, it exists for a reason. Because now he's got a vulnerable uh, champion, so he needs it. The match was set for February twenty seventh in Omaha, with a winner take all payday. The advertisement read. A shooting match if ever there was one, which is a weird goddamn way to run to advertise pro wrestling. Everyone was excited because Omaha hadn't hosted a big match in three years and people were ready for it. A who's who of wrestling came out to watch this go down, including Munn, Gabe Kaufman, Billy Sandow, Jack Curley, Marin Plastina, J.C. Marsh, Joe and Tony Stetcher, and more. Pesek weighed in at 196 to Hansen's 190, and Pesek held a two-inch height advantage. The referee was a secret, which, as Pesek's grandson Jeff Pesek pointed out in his book, The Nebraska Tigerman, The John Pesek Story, suited him just fine. Pesek was worried more about someone leaning on the ref than Hansen's mad skills. Tickets were $1 to $5, and 4,500 people bought them. The Lincoln Journal Star covered it the following day, quote, Every trick known to the sport to inflict punishment and yet stay within the rules was used by Pesek. He roughed the Omahan, Hansen lived in Omaha at the time, his face, half-closed his eyes, tried to flatten his nose, and inflicted painful punishment his, on his midsection with his arms and legs. The first fall was all aggression with Pesek going after Hansen. Hansen's only attempt at offense seemed to be a backdoor escape during a scramble, and he got Pesek's back but really didn't do anything with it. Maybe he was as surprised as anyone that he got a good position on Pesek. <laughs> yeah, it's, you know what's cool about this, too? It's like the rejected stone has become the cornerstone. He got so much shit for being the shooter, for being the policeman, for being too rough in the ring. And now, when it's time to get rough in the ring, it's a who's who to see him do it. And I love the idea of him, like, in a scramble, you know, probably got it, probably got, like, from a front headlock, like, boom, slipped out, got the back door. And I just like this image of, of him being, like, he's gotten his ass dragged up and down the ring this entire time. And suddenly he gets his back and he's like, holy shit, I got his back. And then lost it before he could do anything with it because he was just, whoa, really? <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's like your little brother popped out. They had that one second, like, oh, I got the, bam, that's... Yeah, that's enjoy it, kid. It's fleeting. From that position, he went for a gotch style toehold, but Pasek pulled his legs 
in and got to his feet. At the 26 minute mark, Pesek caught Hansen with a head scissors and slowly forced the shoulders to the canvas for the win. In the second, Pesek came out fresh and Hansen was spent. Pesek tripped him to the canvas and from the description, Hansen just stuck in the turtle position and didn't even try to move. Pesek tried to toss and turn him with a half Nelson, pretty much dragging Hansen to his feet. It took 37 minutes to wear Hansen down to nothing and get the second straight fall. Jesus. Charlie Hansen was beaten and laid on the canvas, exhausted, while the crowd cheered for Pesek. Pesek got the purse, a $2,500 side bet, and everyone but Charlie Hansen and his team were happy. The Lincoln Star recounted that, quote, Hansen was so exhausted at the close of the match that he had to be carried to the dressing room. He was a pitiful sight. It is understood among the sporting fraternity that Hansen had bet every cent he had in the world on himself. Martin Burns was disappointed in the outcome, especially after being critical of Pesek's grappling skills, but he gave the man his due. The Omaha World Herald headline read, Hansen's attempt at trust-busting ends. So, like... Martin Burns was clearly one of those guys where he really only hyped and respected people from his own school, his own gym, his own lineage, and thought everybody else was bums. That's a thing you see in martial arts to this day, and probably did for centuries before. And Hansen, you know, he fell right into that Sandow policeman trap like so many had before of, I'm going to mouth off, I'm going to mouth off, I'm in the mouth off, and then, okay, cool, you have to wrestle this guy who now has a reputation as a killer and he still was like I think I can do this and he could not well you you got to give him you, you got to give him props for having the old moxie but the fact is they just use this as the lesson and the example for everybody they just put his head on a pike for any would be shooters that want to try to cross the trust he got dragged through what is the equivalent of two UFC five five-minute round title fights and a regular three five-minute round of just getting your ass whooped. So to say that he was probably a pitiful sight is an understatement at that point. April 1st was Stanislaus Zabisco's birthday. Steve Yohei and his fantastic Ed Strangler Lewis, facts within a myth, wonders about Zabisco's mindset at this point. Knowing his career was winding down and how he was reduced to an absolute jobber at this point, Yohei also pointed out that a lot of wrestling purists hated Sandow's new gimmick and hated the turning of the sport into a circus. With brawling men flying out of the ring, they believed the fans would tire of this style and the sport would die. So, Twitter before Twitter. Yeah, it just, the same old shit, man. It just, it just shows you either die young enough to be into the flippy high spot shit or you live long enough to see yourself become the old get off my lawn man of pro wrestling. Yohei believes that Stanislaus felt the same way, watching the twilight of his career being ground down by endless losses to build stars he couldn't see as his equals. I wonder if this was in his head when he was selected by the Pennsylvania Athletic Commission to face Wayne Munn again on April 15th. The match was promoted by Sandow ally boxing promoter John Curley, no relation to Jack. Meanwhile, Stetcher was putting on hot matches with a more shoot style, like April 14th in Philadelphia against former Harvard coach Frank Judson. This might have been a shoot, but I doubt it but they sure presented it and pushed it as one. 
they were doing a more subtle version of calling everything else a phony by simply putting on matches that were harder to call works. The press ate it up. Wayne Munn, meanwhile, was in a training camp for his big rematch, which means he was dicking around and went to the season opener for the Phillies. So I really do like the subtle way Stetcher's doing this. He's not doing the the old, like, these guys are phonies and I'm the real deal. He was show, don't tell. You know, he was putting on these matches, which were like very hard to call like a worked pro wrestling match because he did it a throwback style. So it just looked like legit catches catch can competition. Yeah. So this is like on like a, a cellular level, we are seeing where the, the split into the two sort of DNAs of like, there's the work show sports entertainment branch and there's more of the I guess what would you say legitimate harder to find a find, tell that it's a work yeah it, it makes me think a lot about how Japanese pro wrestling split in the 90s where it was this is now shoot wrestling which is our way of saying we're real and these guys are fake and we're going to present that pancreas style of wrestling to differentiate to the more WWF style entertainment wrestling. Yeah. And, you know, once again, it's like that's the way you always try to separate things by claiming we're the real thing. These guys are a bunch of dorks. Yeah. And I mean, same thing with like the territory and the Crockett presentation and the Watsons versus sort of like the show WWF stuff at that time. They presented like Southern wrestling is this is the real shit, brother. So let's say, you know, again, they're inventing the, the things that become. So common their tropes now. On April 15th, in front of 8,000 fans packed into the Philadelphia arena to watch history be made, whether they knew it or not, it was the rematch between Stanislaw Zabisco and Big Wayne Munn. On the undercard, John Pesek pinned Frank Bruno five times in 30 minutes during a handicap match. Not sure which would be more embarrassing for Bruno, this being a shoot or a work. Because it's like, it's one thing to be like, okay, I'm going to put this guy over five times and look like an asshole. Or worse, what if I, I don't put him over, he just takes it five times from me. Either way, you look like a jerk and probably feel like one too. Yeah, I gotta say though, the the work one is probably worse because that means somebody thought that about you enough to pitch that angle. But then the main event was underway. Stanislaw Zabisco entered the arena with boxer Lou Kid Palmer as his second. Big Wayne Munn entered with his quote manager Gabe Kaufman. From the audience eye, the match was kind of meh. In the first fall, Munn couldn't really get any offense going, and in 8 minutes 11 seconds, Zabisco, showing more speed than a man of his carriage should be capable of, got Munn's back, lifted, slammed, and pinned the much bigger Munn. So you can see what happens when a guy decides it's time to actually turn it up. It's uh, suddenly you see this almost 50-year-old schlubby guy suddenly moving rocket speed because he's been doing this for fucking decades and that muscle memory never goes away so i'm seeing like randy couture tim sylvia right now oh that is a great way to describe it absolutely and munn and kaufman were very animated as they made their way to the dressing room for the rest period zabisco however stayed in the ring he put on his robe and sat on his stool in the corner. Kid Palmer stood on the floor behind him, looking around cautiously. A number of men walked up to Zabisco and talked to him. He just shook his head until they left. 
Max Bauman came out and had a close conversation with Zabisco that nobody could hear. According to Steve Yohei, the rumor was that Bauman threatened to send out John Pesek for the second. Zabisco just shook his head until Bauman walked away. Munn finally did come out for the second, which was very brave, all things considered. This time, he only lasted 4 minutes 53 seconds. Again, Munn reached for Zabisco, who ducked under and took his back, picked him up for a slam. Zabisco used a hammerlock to pin Munn for the win and the title. Kid Palmer led a group of police to protect the new champ as the crowd celebrated with him. The cops escorted him backstage and then to his car. Munn reportedly fainted backstage. There were claims of him having a fever of 104 due to tonsillitis, though the ringside doctor debunked that statement, which insinuated that he wasn't doing his job. Gabe Kaufman claimed that Munn was so sick that anyone could have beaten him. What a fucking swerve. Stanislaw Zabisco covered all his bases when he decided to double-cross the Gold Dust Trio. He made sure he had a boxer who was a tough motherfucker wa literally watching his back so he could throw hands on anybody who came out and started any shit. He knew not to go backstage between the falls because he knew they would pull some shit, try to detain him, have you know them like lock the fucking door on him and come out and say he slipped on a banana peel. The, the, they're coming out trying to like badger him and threaten him because they now know what he's doing and they're trying to put the brakes on this any fucking way possible. But he just sat there and there was no way they couldn't send Wayne Munn out without looking like total fucking jerks. Wow. I wonder what, I bet he had that thing on him too in his robe. He put his robe on. I'm sure there was a reason for that. He was, that is, dude, can you imagine what it felt like sitting on the stool waiting to see if somebody was going to come in the ring and fight you or if they were going to maybe start a fire or do some shit oh, to yeah. like vacate the venue and then he comes, you're like, oh my God, this is actually, they're going to send this motherfucker yeah, back in here? Yeah, I mean, if there, I, I feel like if there were fire alarms at this point, like Sandow would have pulled a fire alarm. Oh, straight up. And, and then... And then, yeah, he just straight shoots on uh, Munn, puts him down, one, two, three. And then the boxer he had as his bodyguard immediately brought the cops out to uh, to protect him just in case something, something was going to be tried. Because nobody had done a screw job like this in history. They trusted Zabisco so much, but they trusted him too much because they trusted him to just take big bowls of shit every fucking meal for years. And finally, he had enough. Yeah, and that's the thing. Back then, the fighter's ego where you can't beat me is so much more a facet of putting a guy over. It's like this guy, when you know you can just literally toy with this person and you have to make them look like they're kicking your ass and you're a legitimate competitor, that's a hard pill to swallow. And like you said, they made him eat shit and be a doormat for years. And he saw, dude, this was, I don't blame him. He, he made history, man. On April 28th, it was reported that Munn had his tonsils removed. I assume this was kayfabe to maintain the story that he was so sick. That's why Zabisco beat him. He was, he was feverish. He was sick. He was in pain. 
anybody could have beat him that night, trying to do damage control as best they could. You know, as we've already discussed, and as you probably figured out immediately, this was not how the match was supposed to go. Munn was supposed to get another big win over the Sandow Loyalist Zabisco, setting up the rematch versus Ed Lewis. Instead, they watched from the back as their greatest fear unfolded as a legitimate wrestler double-crossed them and shot on Munn. Even a heavy, older Zabisco was still capable of out-wrestling men bigger and younger than him, and he knew Munn would be easy prey, which is admirable, if that's the word for it, was the planning around the match. You know, the whole having a pro boxer watch his back and ready to throw hands, refusing to go backstage where he could be detained, threatened, assaulted. All concerns were covered before the bell even rang. Because you have to keep in mind, like we discussed back in March with our episode about Zabisco, Zabisco was a brilliant thinker. He had degrees in philosophy, in law. He was very well educated. He was very bright. He spoke many languages. This is not a dummy. So when he sat down and said, this is how it's going to go, he planned this like a fucking bank heist in a movie. Yeah, I was just going to say, this reminds me of Snatch. When they worked a fight, and, like when he's leaving, this is exactly what I envision, like the, 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 the sort of the same vibe and intensity of what that, it feels like trying to get out of the ring. Yeah, it's like, uh, I, I, in my brain, I was thinking about it like an Ocean's Eleven type of thing where you make sure th- this guy's in on it, this guy's over sure, here. We cover, yeah. we cover every fucking detail from the minute we step in the arena to how we get back to the hotel. And man, that is some wild, wild shit. And that's why the history of pro wrestling is cooler than pretty much any other history that I skipped class and didn't learn. Ed Lewis, I'm sure, was imploding with rage, especially since he and Mont worried about this exact thing. So he maintained storyline in the press, claiming that Munn wasn't, quote, the real champion because he was. He had the belt. He was screwed out of the, quote, title. So Zabisco beating Munn meant nothing. So that's some great damage control there. Yeah, dude. That's some Sandow black belt shit of, of damage control and calling the right audible. And... That shows you when you book to the highest degree of correctness, that protect, that additional layer of nuance in the storytelling ended up being his save, his salvation right here of not giving the belt. Now that's his out. A match between Zabisco and Joe Stetcher was scheduled for May 30th in St. Louis, the same day as the Lewis Munn rematch in Michigan City, Indiana. If I've, I don't know if I've ever seen such a big fuck you. Like, the running against the other guy. I mean, that's a dirty move, even in small towns with two shows going on in the same day, let alone doing two, quote, title matches. Not, you know, technically a train ride apart, so people could, had to legitimately choose which one they were going to attend. So that was a dick move, a dirty move, and I love it. Yeah, that's the, the, you know, like when they did like Starcade versus WrestleMania or Royal Rumble and they were literally creating pay-per-views to run opposition. That's, I love, that's the real competition of pro wrestling and it's so deep in its skullduggery. I fucking love this shit, man. In the meantime, Wayne Munn leaned into the I'm too sick to wrestle story and canceled his bookings. Ed Lewis was busy with wins over B-level guys. Zabisco toured with a title, but no belt. But he couldn't put butts in seats with his efforts. 
People just didn't seem interested in seeing the old man of the ring as a champion. Zabisco filed a legal injunction to stop Lewis from claiming to be the champion, which was denied by the judge, I assume on the grounds of Ballyhoo. Yes, and it's like, the judge is like, clearly we're setting this thing up, Daddy. I'm not going to let you get this, get this win in court. We want to see it. The Munn-Lewis rematch was billed as for the title, or a title unification match, which probably was the original plan. Munn had a cut over his eye from training with Toots Mont, and Lewis looked leaner than he had in a while. The first fall saw Munn shrugging off all of Lewis's offense before getting his big body slam for the pin at 24 minutes, 55 seconds. Between falls, it was announced that Munn wouldn't come out unless the actual championship belt was handed over to the referee for safekeeping. The gold and jewel-encrusted belt was escorted to the ring by the police, lest some hooligan try to steal it. Yeah, I, who are you to make demands, Big Wayne Munn? You're lucky I'm carrying you 25 minutes in this first fall after you just got jobbed. I think it's brilliant because... Clearly, it did tie into the original plan for this rematch, but it also creates a big presentation and sets up Munn as, you know, the baby face who's going to win this or a swerve where Lewis wins it back. Either way, it does increase crowd energy and involvement. Yeah, man, it's it's so incredible to see how no matter pretty much what happens, Sandow can spin gold out of it. The second fall saw Munn as the aggressor for 20 minutes, but Lewis defending well until Munn tired himself out at the 32-minute 12-second mark. Lewis slammed Munn to even the series. The Richmond item reported that Lewis had a unique defense for Munn's famous crotch hold, that of dropping to his knees when Munn tried for it. Epic cheat code there, fucking genius. Well, that's what happens when you fight a jiu-jitsu world champion. He pulls guard. Yeah, it's like, oh, man. So he, he came up with a brilliant defense for when a guy tried to pick him up. He just squatted down. Boom. Think about it. <laughs> it just shows how infinitely complicated yet infinitely simple the art of fighting is. In the third, Munn came out looking completely spent. Lewis bullied him around the ring, cranked a headlock whenever he wanted, and slammed Munn for a pin after seven very one-sided minutes. Lewis was the winner, declared the champion, and the belt was placed around his waist. They might as well have dragged Munn out back and shot him after this, because they killed any ability to make money off of him in the future. The match drew over 13,000 fans and was a financial success, but nowhere near what they expected it to be before Zabisco double-crossed them. Because yeah. had the title been legitimate and they had the belt handed over to the referee, and you know maybe I don't know what the plan was. Nobody does. Was it to put the belt properly back on Lewis like they were doing here? Or was it to turn Munn into a huge draw babyface by having him finally get the belt. Like it was it would have been like a Daniel Bryan winning the title at WrestleMania moment. Either way, it was brilliant booking. Would have drawn huge fucking numbers, but it had its legs cut off by Stanislaus Abisco. Yeah, this it was bittersweet, but man, what a brilliant save of what could have been a complete trust crushing catastrophe with the double cross so i'm fascinated because now yeah they can't have 
at least at this point, they got to put somebody back in the driver's seat that can get the job done if the heat is on in the ring, bro. Meanwhile in St. Louis, Zabisco was set to defend his title against Joe Stetcher at the St. Louis University Athletic Field in front of 13,500 fans. Zabisco was paid $50,000, Stetcher paid Zabisco $10,000 more and wrestled for free, so you can see where this is headed. Joe won in two straight falls and became the widely acknowledged wrestling champion of the world. But the wildest part? Headline from the St. Louis Post-Dispatch on May 31st. Stetcher tried to kill Zabisco, police surmise. <laughs> Arrest of the new world wrestling champion follows his defeat here of the old man. After the match, Zabisco was taken to the hospital and treated for contusions of the chest and torn ligaments in his right shoulder. Zabisco claimed the injuries were accidental from an awkward landing in the second fall. Lieutenant Henry was ordered by the chief of police to detain Stetcher in case Zabisco's injuries ended up being serious. Wow. You know, it's like, I want, like, I almost want to know if that was like a plant where like they like asked the cops to do that or if the police were so legitimately concerned for Stanislaw Zabisco's well-being that they detained Stetcher in case the old man dies. Dude, that's some Stone Cold Steve Austin shit getting arrested on Raw type shit. That is fucking gold. Yeah, like this one, I, I almost feel like it was a it was like a planted plan to put like some weird extra heat on, a little extra spice on the match. Yeah, because I mean, you know, the, unfortunately, it wouldn't have been the first time someone died from what happened in the ring, and oftentimes those the the person who delivered the fatal blow is not legally liable because the nature of the the contest or whatever, but yeah, it smells like a sand out of me, bro. A brilliant one at that. And despite conjecture and mythology surrounding the Zabisco Mun match, nobody really knows why he did it. He never made a statement on the subject. Clearly, the Stetchers paid him a large sum of money to do so, which was clearly an influence when you're winding down your career. But he was making good money with the Goldust Trio and would have done so for at least a few more years. Was it his pride, having gone from being in the same conversation as Gotch and Hackenschmidt to putting over barely trained goobers that he could break in half? Was it the endless jobs without meaningful wins in years? Was it bitterness over Sandow shutting out Vladek, Stanislaus's younger brother, after Lewis became a superstar off of the back of his matches with Vladek? Could be any of them. Could be all of them. Almost immediately, Joe and Tony Stetcher, along with Jack Curley and their associates, became the power in wrestling, having control of the title. The Goldust Trio suddenly found doors shutting in their faces across the nation, with the Stetchers taking their spots. Sandow had Chicago, Kansas City, Boston, Tulsa, and parts of Texas. When they could get a footing in LA and other spots, it would be with the minor league promoters and buildings. So it's like, what a weird turn of events, because it's, you know, he who controls the uh, belt controls the universe. You know, yeah. you have that title, you're able to get that away from him. Well, now suddenly that entire foundation of the Soundow group has been burnt because now the Stetchers are the top guys and now they can shut out the Sandow group. Meanwhile, you have Zabisco, who he committed his career suicide doing this. 
You know, he really did. Yeah. And nobody really knows why he did it. I mean, I feel like it was all those reasons. I feel like there was bitterness. There was resentment. There was pride. There was wanting that a couple of big super paydays that Stature was offering him. I feel that's just the perfect storm for him to just go, you know what? Fuck it. Let's do this thing. Yeah. He, at the end of the day, he had the chance to break the machine and he did it. And it's also, it's really impressive because it shows the prestige that they had built around the championship that now the control, the perceived control of the entire game go in the eyes of the audience and the public goes with it. Very quickly, Zabisco, Londos, and Gardini went over to the Stetcher company like rats fleeing a sinking ship. Pesic was interested in doing business with the Stetchers, but insisted on a greater deal of independence, replacing Max Bauman with Oscar Kirsch as his manager. Sando tried his old trick of running people down in the press. He trotted out the referee from the first Lewis Munn match and made him take back the win by claiming he made a mistake and should have DQ'd Munn five months after the match. Wichita promoter Tom Law countered this by dragging out the referee of the Lewis Abisco match where Lewis threw a punch, claiming he made a mistake and should have DQ'd Lewis and given the title to Zabisco. This was some sad clown-level shit. Well, it just shows how bitter everyone was that they got their asses whooped by Sandow for so long that now that they have the upper hand, they're taking every shot they can. But I'll tell you this, I, I honestly do not know what's going to happen, but... Sandow is way too smart of a strategist to let everyone just fuck with him and have the last word. My money's on Sandow, dog. And it's, it, I just love, though, he was grasping at straws at this point to the point where he trotted out a referee to walk back the win How like so much later in the game. Uh, or or how then like the other promoter, I feel like he was trolling Sandow by being yeah, like, totally. where he's just like, oh yeah, well, this referee takes this back and now Zabisco was the champ you know, a year ago. What's up now, Sandow? It's so childish. Yeah, it's like, I know you are, but what am I? Oh, like, God, straight yeah. up. But, dude, dude you, you don't... This guy has made one miscalculation. He has been strategically perfect in establishing an entirely new industry, and now they're all coming for him. They've buried him, and if I... Unless I've missed my guess, Sandow, he may not get the upper hand again, but he's not going to go out without a fight. And Stanislaus Abisko is going to be a name you'll hear less and less as the story progresses. This move gave him a little bit of a new lease on life with the Stetcher brothers, but who could now trust him? He betrayed the booking, the booker, the promoter, the champion, and everyone in between. Even the Stetchers probably felt the need to keep an eye on him at this point, because even though he crossed the line for their benefit, he still crossed the line. As the joke goes, we know what you are, but now we're just negotiating the price. So he got a few more paydays before retiring, or, well, pro-wrestling retiring anyway. It's very much the, like like in a mob movie, where they, they pay, you know, a made guy in that family to shoot the boss, but then he comes running over, like, I'm with you guys now, right? It's like, who the fuck can trust you? Bam! Yep. You gotta kill the assassin to make the assassination perfect. Yeah, if you're willing to betray your own side then the side that you betray them for has no reason not to betray you and that's what these idiots don't understand man in a way 
Billy Sandow made Joe Stetcher a far more respected and legitimate champ than if he had just done business with the man in the first place. By keeping him out of the title picture and Stetcher being front and center with the press, it felt like an underdog story turned into prophecy with his winning the title. And Joe Stetcher went back to work immediately, beating Dick Daviscourt in Kansas City on June 5th, then off to L.A. to beat Dan Karloff. Lou Darrow was now working with the Stetchers in L.A. and had plans to take the business to the next level. Stetcher defended the title against Frank Judson on June 26th in Chicago in front of 6,000, which must have bothered Lewis, who considered Chicago to be his town. So... As good as this was, I don't see how anybody's going to get to the point where they're going to be able to duck Lewis. He's still got a chance. He's still got a rightful claim to get another shot at this thing. Oh, absolutely. But now he's in the position Stetcher was for over a year. He's now on the outside of the title. I mean, he still has a physical belt. He's still, you know, showing this thing off, claiming to be a champion. But the sporting press and the sporting fans acknowledge Stetcher is the real deal. Which, after a while of playing the begrieved, you know, heel still holding onto the belt, not champion, that starts sounding like sour grapes instead of heel heat very quickly. Yeah, and especially when everyone, that's the problem, everyone is ready to see him go. So even if his case is valid, nobody's going to give him, give him the time of day because they don't want him to be right even if he is. In July, the Stetchers moved to California, buying houses in Long Beach. Long Beach?! You can imagine the culture shock of two Omaha farm boys settling down on the beach. Joe headlined the first wrestling show at the Olympic Auditorium. For the press, Stetcher was seen training with Dempsey, another move that must have burned Sandow and Lewis's asses, and then working out at the Hollywood Athletic Club, which catered to movie stars and celebrities. Right now, Stetcher is living the dream that Lewis and Sandow wanted for Los Angeles. He is now hitting that like celebrity level over there. On August 10th, Stetcher defended the title against Renato Gardini in front of 8,800 fans. Gardini got the second fall with Stetcher getting the first and the third. The Bakersfield Californian the next day published a photo of Dempsey and Stetcher shaking hands with promoter Lou Darrow behind them. A pair of champions, reads the caption. Londos and Zabisco were on the undercard. Londo started his trajectory towards being a huge star at this point now that he wasn't booked just to make Lewis look good. And now that these guys like Londos are free of the Billy Sandow booking, they're able to let their star shine a little bit more. You know, they're no longer there just to make Lewis look good. They're able to get wins against different guys because the dynamic is now totally shifted. Guys who were outside the Sandow group are now getting matches against guys who are inside the Sandow group. Meanwhile, Joe Stetcher is becoming a celebrity champion in the new hot market of Los Angeles and Hollywood, being the first wrestling match in the Audit Olympic Auditorium, which became one of the most legendary buildings in boxing and wrestling. Yeah, that is, it's, they took what was happening with the trust and they pretty much finished the plan of the other side that they defeated. It's pretty remarkable because, yeah, they, like you said, they are, they have accomplished what the original goal was set out to do, and, and they are, the, the, the tables have turned, darling. Stetcher continued to win against Goho Garbadine 
on August 24th, and against Stanislaw Zabisco on September 28th, and then against Londos on November 9th, doing Londos a favor by only winning one fall and letting the clock run out. Stetcher traveled as the new champ and was a hot draw. Meanwhile, Lewis could only draw well in Chicago, but wasn't very active for the rest of the year. He mostly gave Munn rematches on the road with diminished returns. Their December 9th match in Denver only drew 1,200 people. Some papers had trouble keeping everything straight, like the lead daily call with Strangler retains title by throwing Wayne Munn, showing how disinterested that sports writer was in wrestling as a whole. But what a wild turn of events where you know, Lewis, he was still having health issues. He was still dealing with trachoma. He was nearly blind. Most reports said that at this point, if he saw you in the ring, he just saw like an outline, like a shadow person. And now he's tumbling down in the public view. Stetcher is ascending. He's now the big star in LA. He's traveling the, the country defending the title. Meanwhile, Lewis is just doing Mun rematches in front of smaller and smaller crowds. Yes, that is... What a shift 1925 brought to the wrestling business and the ripple effects of which echo today. I mean, there were so many, the genesis of so many things that have become normalized in pro wrestling. We just, we just uncovered where they came from. And in a crazy turn of events, I, I love this. You're going to love this. Wayne Munn tried his hand at boxing again on December 23rd against Andre Anderson. The Kansas City Star on December 20th described it as, quote, Wayne Big Mun, shattered idol of the wrestling ring, is turning to Fistic Arena again in search of fame and Christmas money. <laughs> Woo! Damn! <laughs> that is, what a, what a burn on every fucking level. Dude, that is a cold one. Like, yeah, you, you suck at wrestling, you're a tomato can, you're going back to boxing to try to, oof. Yeah, he must have pissed off that journalist. And it didn't go well. According to the Lincoln Star article from Christmas Eve, it led with, quote, fans howl as Big Mun goes down and out in first round. Anderson KO'd him with an uppercut one minute and 56 seconds Oof. into round one. Boom. Done. The same article described Munn as, quote, he wobbled piteously over the ring in about as clever a manner as a man without legs would do the Charleston. <laughs> Damn. This fool has heat for being a babyface. This, imagine, like, how quickly this all went to shit. Inside of a, you know, a year ago in January of 1925 he was captain america he was this unbeatable baby face beloved by everyone by the end of the year he's a jack-off jobber being mocked by the press for getting punched the fuck out in a minute in however many seconds yeah he basically got the tough enough <laughs> tough enough beheading to, to to decapitate and put the career to bed man that is a cold cold fall from grace and this is where it gets interesting. Munn told the press, quote, I guess I wasn't cut out for boxing. I'll stick to wrestling. No shit, idiot. Anderson said, quote, I'm through throwing fights and laying down whenever they want me to. What a thing to say. Which makes you kind of wonder, um, what was this boxing match supposed to be? Isn't there a word for it? It could be, oh, right. Oh, yes. A hippodrome. So he's just giving away, it's giving away the fucking game. He's being the... 
Jack battling Murdoch or uh, Bruce Willis in Pulp Fiction, and he's just out telling the press, pr pretty much straightforward, I'm not throwing fights anymore. You know, imagine being a a bot like a just a slugger, a fucking you know palooka, you know, in the boxing ring. You're supposed to be doing a job to this guy, and much like Zabisco, he's like, I am not carrying this asshole. Whether it was supposed to be letting Mun win or at least carrying him four to you know four or five rounds, he was just like, fuck this. My dignity cannot take you know cannot take making this guy look good. Double cross twice. Jabroni double stack sandwich. But, you know, he didn't throw the fight. He didn't uh, do what he was supposed to. And I'm sure nothing bad happened to him. Oh, wait. Three months later, Anderson was gunned down and the police stated it was a mob hit for Anderson not throwing the fight against Munn. Lewis and Daly's son on April 24th, 1926 headline. Big wrestler is involved in new scandal. Fixing charged. Andre Anderson, it is asserted, refused to bag Wayne Big Mun bout. Shot in back after knocking out Mun, police say. Fixer did the killing. Leo McGovern was indicted in the murder. Police claiming he fixed the fight and killed Anderson for fucking up the plan. The suspect disappeared until he was in a car accident over a year later. But at that point, there were no witnesses willing to testify. There were some papers that claimed the fight was on the up and up and the shooting was a personal argument, but in my estimation, Anderson was probably paid to carry Munn for at least a few rounds, if not put him over for the sake of betting. He more or less was in a similar situation as Zabisco, as I stated, tasked with making an enormous incompetent look like a world beater and change the script with serious consequences. So yeah, this guy... I mean, again, battling Jack Murdoch. I don't know if he had a blind son that went on to be a vigilante. But yeah, he paid the price for double-crossing the mob. And who boy, I wonder if I wonder if this was a situation where Munn was in on this one. Because it was boxing, so I don't feel like he was on in on the inner workings. I feel like this was a mob-related uh, boxing promoter. Made an offer. It was good enough for Munn to take it. This guy was told to carry him. Maybe Munn was told, hey, this guy will take it easy on you, at least for a few rounds, whatever. Guy just beats the shit out of him, knocks him out in one round. And I don't know, if you've never been in a boxing match, if you've never been hit with one, an uppercut knockout is fucking horrific. Because there's no way to land safely after that. You go down hard, your lights are out, your neck is going to be fucked for days. And it's almost the taller you are, the worse it is if it hits you flush. Because big 6'6 six, six fall really, really hard. And that was more or less the end of Wayne Munn's career. He would go on to wrestle for a while, again, mostly doing rematches with Ed Lewis. Joe Stetcher was the acknowledged world champ. He was at the top of the world. Ed Lewis was tumbling in the, the estimation of the wrestling sporting audience. Billy Sandow is now in a position of having to you know, reclaim his throne, his business. He's, he's the mob boss that has been pushed out of the city. And the Stetchers are now uh, running things and reaping the rewards for all the work that he did. He's watching Stetcher in L.A. being treated like a fucking movie star, doing business with Dempsey. All the things he wanted for himself and for Ed Lewis which leads into some very interesting business plans, some revenge, some plotting, some counterthwarts, all sorts of crazy political machinations in the year 1926, which we will talk about next time. Dude, I'm excited, man, because yeah, you don't, you don't, 
You don't fuck with Billy Sandow at his own game. You know what I'm saying? That's the king of the Hippodrome, and these boys are about to get a, a master class in getting worked if, if Chongo has any sort of spider sense about that sort of thing, and I do. So this story will continue. I'm so glad that you've all been on the ride with us. I mean, this one's been going on since March. I really love how we're able to explore these characters, explore these peoples, explore these lives, these matches, these political intrigues. It's very almost Game of Thrones. It's a mob yeah. movie just with wrestling. And I am crazy about it. So make sure you like us on Facebook. Follow us on Twitter and Instagram. I post photos and old articles that I find while doing research for this. And some of them are absolutely a hoot, as you can tell from the quotations I throw around. And if you look in the description, you'll see a Venmo there. No pressure, but if you like this enough to send me a buck or two for the cost of books and uh, archive subscriptions, much appreciated. But you know what? We'll keep doing this show even if none of you deadbeats send us a penny. So we'll talk to you next time. Thanks for being here. For Chongo Bronson, I'm Nick Gossert. Peace out, nerds. Cut, print, hippodrome, teeny.